you would, go ahead and turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 will be in verses 1 through 10 today, and it is our habit as a church, it is our rhythm as a church to put ourselves under the Word of God, to open God's Word, not to put ourselves over God's Word, where we're judging it, where we're taking what we like about it, but that we're sitting ourselves under God's word to receive his truth um, and be changed by it. So let's read from Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says this, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he could cause one that he that he then that he could cause one of these little ones to sin pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him and if he sins against you 7 times in the day and turns to you 7 times saying i repent you must forgive him the apostle said to the lord increase our faith and the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat? And drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would, Lord, help us by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, that you would show us what it means to follow you. Lord, not the unbiblical extra expectations that we put on ourselves that, that maybe churches have put on us in the past, but Lord, a refreshing look on what it looks like to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus as our treasure, to follow Jesus as unworthy servants who are recipients of grace. Lord, let us... Do this for your glory and for our joy. Would you help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gentlemen, this is a football. It was 1961, and the Green Bay Packers had finished the previous season in a heartbreaking fashion. They had the lead in the NFL championship game, and they squandered the lead and lost to the Philadelphia Eagles. It's not hard for UK fans to feel that little angst this morning. Well, the next summer, this is how legendary coach Vince Lombardi, how he started training camp. He stood in front of the 38 players at practice, and he said this, gentlemen, this is a football. It was a call to, to get back to the basics, to get back to the basics of this game that they love, to, to really get down to what is football all about. 
And remarkably, Vince Lombardi would never lose another playoff game. That's pretty incredible. Well, in Luke 17, Jesus is standing before his disciples, and he's saying this, brothers, this is discipleship. Jesus is returning us to the the basics of what it means to be a disciple, what what it means to be one of his followers. And this is what I'm aiming for this morning. Through the words of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm praying that the Lord would help us simplify the Christian life to simplify what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to take away all the extra, unbiblical expectations that that we have put on ourselves, that maybe churches have put on us, those unbiblical expectations, and to get back to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you're anything like me, maybe sometimes you, you need this refresher on what does it really mean to be a disciple. Because more, more times than not, I don't always feel like I'm like the greatest Christian in the world. Does anybody else ever feel that way? Where I don't feel like, I don't know if I really have this figured out. I don't know if I'm a great Christian, a great pastor, a, a, a very good one at all. I constantly picture Jesus maybe feeling a little disappointed in me. Maybe he's filled with a low-grade frustration with my feeble attempts to follow him. Or his arms are crossed. He's shaking his head a little bit at this sorry excuse of a disciple. Maybe you feel that way as well. This week I'd felt that way a couple times. And, you know, that I'm I'm not a great Christian. I'm not a great pastor. This isn't going to be a great sermon. And yet literally every time that I felt this way, someone in this room sent an encouraging text at that very moment saying, hey, I'm so thankful for you. Hey, I just read this description of what a pastor is, and it reminded me of you. God, that was God's kindness through you all to to show me the love and the grace of Christ. And so I'm praying this morning through this message that you would hear Jesus, that you would sense the Holy Spirit telling you, you are doing it. You are faithfully following me. Or or simply, this is what it looks like to follow me, and you can do this. I, I love you. I am for you. So we see in this passage this morning three simple ways, three ways to simplify your discipleship. The the first one is this. Be careful with sin. Be careful with sin. Jesus tells his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. He's saying you should be careful. You should be watchful. It's not the call to be serious on a Sunday morning or to briefly look and make sure there's no danger around you, but a continual watchfulness as a Christian. It's a call for ongoing vigilance, to to run surveillance over your life at all times, watching out for the dangers of sin. Notice I didn't say be comfortable with sin. You might think that that's what we hear sometimes, by the way, that we, that we deal with sin as Christians, with, with what they do, with, with what they walk, talk about. 
with what they say, with what they wear, with what they watch, you would say, maybe we've got too comfortable with sin. I think about what Pastor Kevin DeYoung says. He said one time, hey, he, he says, we say this to the world, we would never do the things that you would do, but we'll have fun watching you do them. In Jeremiah 6, this is what Jeremiah 6 says about the people of Israel, about the people of God. It says that they, they do not know how to blush. They had forgotten how to blush, how to feel shame, how to be bothered by sin. Maybe that sounds familiar this morning. Listen, there's no way to dilute the danger of sin. Sin is always dangerous. Sin is always deadly. Therefore, we should always take sin seriously. My pastor in seminary, Josh Powell, he used to always say this, the aim of the Christian life every day is to hate sin more and to love Jesus more. If you want to simplify your Christian life, that is a great way to do it this morning. For you to every day, I want to hate sin more and I want to love Jesus more. He shows us in this passage three ways that we can do this with sin, to be careful with sin, to pay attention, to to take sin more seriously than we are right now. And here's the first one he gives us. He says, be careful not to lead others to sin. It's one thing for you to be comfortable with your sin, for you to take your sin lightly, but it's another evil, Jesus says, to cause someone else to sin, to cause someone else to stumble. Imagine with me a millstone. Maybe you don't know what a millstone is, but it's a heavy circular stone used for grinding grain in Jesus' day. If you've ever seen the movie The Star, I think it's the, the big stone that they're turning, the donkey is turning in the barn there. This was a stone that was like hundreds of pounds, hundreds of pounds. And, and now imagine wearing that stone like a necklace, like putting it around your neck. The weight itself would crush you. Now imagine someone pushing you off a cliff and you sinking to the bottom of an ocean floor. Like I probably just described one of the most terrible things that could ever happen to you, right? Like, that would be the worst. Like, what could be worse than having a 100-pound concrete jumpsuit on and jumping into, falling into, being pushed into an ocean? Well, Jesus says that's not as close as terrible. Not even as close as terrible as causing someone to stumble. It's causing another brother, another sister, a young child in the faith to sin. Listen, we always underestimate how much our sin hurts us and how much our sin hurts others. Think about that. Every time you sin, you underestimate how much it's hurting you and how much it's hurting others. Our heart says things like, well, what's the the big deal? It's just one picture. It's just one time. It's just one scene. It's just one little lie. It's one little Word, it's not hurting anybody. But do you see what Jesus is saying in this passage? Jesus says it would be better for you to die a horrible death 
than to teach someone a false gospel that leads them away from Jesus. It would be better to drown in the ocean than your hidden life at home to lead your kids away from Jesus. It would be better to to die than your lifestyle on campus to tell other students at Western that sin is better than following Jesus. It would better be better for you to go scuba diving in a concrete jumpsuit than grumbling and complaining, than having a grumbling and complaining attitude at work that turns people away from joy that they can find in Jesus. We have to believe this with all our heart, that sin is always dangerous, that it's always destructive, that it's always deadly. Sin is never done in isolation, never. It's always hurting you, and it's always hurting others. So be careful not to lead others into sin. But then he says this, be careful to rebuke sin. Be careful to rebuke sin. He says, Jesus says, disciples shouldn't just take their sin seriously. We should take others, other disciples' sin seriously. Look at verse 3. He says, if your brother sins, ignore it. No. If your brother sins, don't make a big deal about it. If your brother sins, overlook it. Hey, we we all sin. Who, Who are we to tell someone else that they've sinned? No, Jesus says clearly in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. See, sanctification, this the process of looking more and more and more like Jesus is a community project. We're all here to become more like Jesus together. That means that if we're going to hate sin more and we're going to love Jesus more, I need you and you need me or it's not going to happen. We have to do this together. We say this in our covenant. We say for our brothers and sisters, we will seek their spiritual growth as dearly as our own. As dearly as our own. I want to hate your sin, and I want to hate my sin, and I want to love Jesus together. I've often said that I want to be a part of a church that hates my sin with me, but then will hate my sin for me when I no longer hate it. That will call me to repentance. That will call me away from sin that's deceiving me, that's destructive, that's deadly, and turn my eyes to Jesus that is the treasure worth more than all my sin. Listen, if, if sin is really dangerous and destructive and deadly, we can't take it lightly. This would be like a lion's running loose in the kids' classes, and we take our kids to the door and say, have fun in Sunday school. Like, that would be foolish. That would be unloving. We would not care about them if we would do that. That's how careless we are when we don't rebuke someone for their sin. When we don't call one another to repentance, we must continuously call one another away from sin that's so deadly to the living, gracious life that's found in Jesus Christ. Finally, he says, be careful to forgive sin. To forgive sin. This is the flip side of the rebuke. What happens when, this is what happens when someone listens to you 
and they repent. Those who are willing to rebuke someone must be just as willing to forgive someone. So make a note here that if you're not ready to lavish grace and love and forgiveness on someone, you're probably not the person that needs to rebuke them. Because Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgiveness is not optional. No, it should be automatic for those who repent. Listen, the Lord Jesus never withholds forgiveness to anyone who repents. So neither should his kids. Neither should his people. Sadly, the the church holds back when we need to rebuke. It holds back when we need to forgive. We take sin lightly and we forgive slowly, but instead we should take sin seriously and forgive quickly. Now listen, I'm sure right now there are many people even in this moment that that know of sins that you are unwilling to let go of. Things that have been done to you that you're unwilling to never bring up again. You're unwilling to not hold that sin against your spouse. You're unwilling not to keep a record of wrong. But listen, this is not the gospel. This is not the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus has never once said, I would never forgive him for that. Jesus has never once in all eternity said, I will never let go of her ever doing that. In fact, Jesus Christ, while he's hanging on the cross, is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The heart of the gospel is Jesus lavishing grace, lavishing love, lavishing forgiveness on those who could never earn it, who could never deserve it. Jesus promises even today Jesus promises even right now in this moment, if you will trust in him, if you will see that your deadly and destructive sin that that you deserve the wrath of God for was laid on Jesus on the cross and three days later he rose again, if you would turn to Jesus right now, he's saying this, if you repent, I will forgive you. That's a promise Jesus is making to you right now in this moment, no matter how bad your sin is, no matter what your past looks like. If you repent, I will forgive you. I will forgive you. So how could those who have experienced this grace say, if you repent, I'll think about it. If you repent, I I don't know, I'll consider it. How could those who know the limitless forgiveness of Jesus be so limited when it comes to forgiving others? How could we who know the generous grace of Jesus be so stingy and close-fisted with the grace that we show others? Jesus himself says this, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who are forgiven much, forgive much. I'm I'm not saying this is easy. I know there's a lot of hurt even in this room right now. 
I'm not saying it's easy, but through the power of the gospel, we can forgive sin. For those who repent, we can lavish grace upon them just like the Lord Jesus has done. Well, you say, well, what happens, what what do you do if it happens over and over again? Well, Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. See, for the Jewish leaders to forgive someone once was one thing. To forgive someone twice was pretty good, but they would say if you forgave someone three times that you were going above and beyond. And yet Jesus says if, you, if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times on that day and says, I repent, you must forgive. Not you should think about forgiving. You must forgive. Remember Matthew 18, it goes even further. Peter asks, should I forgive them seven times, Lord? And what's Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Seventy times seven. Forgiving others should be habitual for those who have been forgiven much. Forgiving others should be limitless to those who know the limitless grace of Jesus. So let me ask you today, are you taking sin seriously? Meaning, are you careful not to lead others to sin? Are you careful to rebuke others? Are you careful to to lavish forgiveness on those who repent? Be careful. Be careful with sin. Number two, be prayerful in faith. Be prayerful. Maybe it's all this talk about the dangers of sin or or that sin needs to be rebuked or you have to forgive sinners. But the apostles are standing back and they're like, "Um, Lord, can you increase my faith? Can I get some more faith? Because I don't know if I can do this. They think a lot like me. I'm I'm not cut out for this. I don't have enough faith for this, faith to rebuke or to forgive. I don't have enough faith for this. And listen, they're totally right. They are seeing things correctly. The task is too great. It's too great for you, and it's too great for me. And that's why Jesus says this. If you had, verse 6, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, we're talking the smallest of seeds, You could say to this mulberry tree, a tree that was known for having the deepest of roots, you could say to it, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. See, Jesus is saying, it's not the the quantity of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. It's not how great your faith is, but it's how great your God is. This isn't a lesson about how to throw trees in seas. No, this is is a lesson of Jesus saying, you can trust me. Even with the smallest and the weakest and the unimpressive faith that you think you have, rest it all on me. I want us to be encouraged by this this morning, church. It's not the amount of your faith that matters. 
I know we look at ourselves and we measure ourselves a lot, but it's not the amount of your faith that matters. It's the presence of faith that matters. It's the fact that there is faith, even maybe the smallest, the insignificant, the the weak faith in a great God who you can cast all your hope upon. As one pastor said, it's better... It's better to have weak faith in a strong branch than strong faith in a weak branch. It's better to have weak faith in a strong branch than strong faith in a weak branch. To to be in your smallness and your weakness to cling to Jesus. See, we can spend so much time looking at ourselves. I know I do saying my faith seems weak. It seems small. We We can measure ourselves. Man, I don't feel like I have that much faith. It seems small. Or or we can compare ourselves to others, don't we? We say, man, my faith is just not like hers. My faith is not quite as strong as his. But listen, you, you might not have the same faith, but listen to this encouraging truth. You might not have the same faith, but you have the same God as Moses and Mary. You have the same God as Abraham and Sarah, the same God as Peter and Paul and Billy Graham and Lottie Moon, the same God that you're clinging to. So so if you have simple, simple childlike faith that's desperately dependent on the Lord, this is enough, Jesus is saying. It's enough to throw trees in the sea. It's enough to move mountains. Just bank all your hope. On him, don't don't be paralyzed by the size of your faith, but be overwhelmed by the greatness of God. Don't be paralyzed by how small and how insignificant and weak you feel like your faith is, but be overwhelmed by the greatness of your God. That means quit looking at yourself so much. That'll help you breathe a little. Quit looking at yourself so much and look at Jesus. Look at your good heavenly Father, the way this simple faith shows up in our lives is really the main way is through prayer. Prayer is you declaring your bankruptcy before God. It's you confessing your weakness. It's owning your small faith. It's simply saying, I know I'm weak. My faith is small, but you are more than enough, God. What if you spent time this week doing that, just confessing your weakness to a great God? Sometimes I like to pray with my hands laid out flat in front of me just to say, I have nothing to bring. What I have is weak and unimpressive and insignificant, but God, before you, you can take fish and loaves and feed 5,000. Lord, with this small faith, Lord, you can move mountains. You can do anything. Finally, be faithful to serve. The final thing Jesus shows us is that we are nothing. We are nothing but humble servants. He calls us unworthy servants. We are unworthy servants of a worthy king. Now listen. We're not worthless servants. 
Don't hear worthless. You have no value. You're not cared about by your king. No, he's simply expressing that we are all debtors to grace. All of us are forever in debt to the great grace that we've received. Not that we could ever pay it back. Don't don't get into that thinking you're going to pay back all that God has given you. But that you're all all in debt to the great grace that Jesus has given us. And Jesus drives us home by saying, think about this. Think about how you treat your own servant. When your servant comes in a field, you don't say, hey, come in, sit down, get comfortable, wheel of fortune's on, grab a plate. Like, you don't, you don't just sit and tell them to be comfortable. You don't go overboard giving thanks to your servant. Why is that? He says, because they're simply doing their duty. They're doing what they've been called to do. You might not notice it in the passage, but there's actually a close connection in verse 9 between giving thanks and the word grace. Giving thanks and grace. He says, does he thank the servant? See, the owner of the field would never say to his servant, I can't believe that you would do this for me. I'm not worthy of this kind of service. Or, or this is such a great get grace that I would never deserve. How could I ever repay you? The same is true of our Lord. The Lord never says to his servants, he he never says to his disciples, I can't believe that you would do this for me. I, I can't believe that you would surrender everything to me. I can't believe that this morning this church would sing to me to bring me an offering, to, to worship me with their hearts. How could I ever repay you guys? How could I ever pay you? I'm not worthy of this kind of love and sacrifice. Why does he not say that? Because the Lord is worthy. Because he is worthy of all our worship and all our praise and all our sacrifice. We are the ones forever indebted to his undeserving grace. He will never be indebted to us. We are the ones who joyfully exist to serve him. He does not exist to serve us. We are the ones who are unworthy of his love and forgiveness. He, though, is forever worthy. So this morning, serve the Lord with gladness. That's what the psalmist tells us to do. That's a way to simplify your Christian life. Serve the Lord with gladness, not so you can earn his love, but because he's lavished his love upon you. Worship the Lord with thanksgiving, not to earn his grace, but because we've been had grace lavished upon us. Find great joy in being the unworthy servants of the only one who's worthy. What if the only reason... You got up at 2 a.m. with joy to feed your baby was because Jesus is worthy. 
What if the only reason you worked so hard at Western or so hard at a factory or so hard on your job was because Jesus was worthy of your, your greatest service? What if you're patient with your kids and, and selflessly serve your spouse because Jesus is worthy? What if you helped others sacrificially and gave generously and shared Jesus again and again just because Jesus is worthy? What if you plant your life overseas because Jesus is worthy, not only of your service and your worship, but the service and the worship of all the nations? See, there's a lot of joy and freedom in ministry. There's a lot of joy and freedom in, in the Christian life when your only aim is, I just want to be faithful. I just want to be faithful. I've said that a lot this year to the pastors. I just want to simply be faithful, and he can choose to do whatever he wants to do with his faithfulness. Let, let faithfulness be an offering to a king who's worthy of it. See, but the problem is when I make something other than faithfulness the goal. When you make something other than faithfulness the aim of your life, things get a little messy. When you make being impressive the goal, or being fruitful the goal, or being known the goal, or being enough the goal, or being worthy, or being successful the goal. This is when the Christian life this is when being a disciple starts to get complicated, when it starts to get frustrating. But your whole life aiming at faithfulness, your whole life lived under the banner of Jesus is worthy. I promise that's a duty that will lead to delight. Because one day we'll stand in heaven for all eternity, and even for all eternity, He's going to be the one who's worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And will still simply be unworthy servants. Forever recipients of his grace. Forever in awe that he would love us. Forever amazed at the grace that he alone can give. Worthy are you to receive power and glory and wisdom and honor and blessing. So this morning, let me help you simplify your discipleship. Let, let me help you live a life that Jesus is asking you to live that will be fully pleasing to him. Be, be careful to, to hate sin more and love Jesus more. Be prayerful even with the smallest and the weakest faith and then be faithful to serve the only one who's worthy. Let's stop complicating what it means to follow Jesus, and let's get back to the basics. Brothers and sisters, this is discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us live lives that are fully pleasing to you. Lord, not that we could earn your love, but because your love has been lavished upon us in Jesus. Lord, not, 
so we can somehow earn your grace, but, but, but because we are recipients of a grace we could not earn and we could never deserve. Lord, let us be so overwhelmed by the fact that when we repented of our sins, that you forgave us with joy. Lord, let us now serve you with joy. Lord, I pray this morning if there's someone here who has never done that, never repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, Lord, I I pray that even in this moment they would hear your promise to forgive them. If they would repent, that you will forgive. Lord, make us this morning serious about sin. Lord, make us this morning prayerful, dependent, childlike Christians who are dependent on you. And Lord, make us, Lord, make us this morning unworthy servants. For you, the one who alone is worthy. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.